Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and joining me for our weekly conversation about church news around the world, we've got Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. He's the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English-language bio of Pope Francis and the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Bunsen. Uh, Register Radio airs on Saturdays at 4 p.m., Sundays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. And Matthew, good to have you here. Yes, yeah, same, same here, and, and uh, happy Hobbit Day. I think today is uh, <laughs> Hobbit Day, if you follow. <laughs> okay. It's culminating the end of Tolkien Week. And we're here we were in this month celebrating the 50th, uh, marking the 50th uh, anniversary of the passing of J.R.R. Tolkien. So I wanted to congratulate our audience for celebrating Hobbit Day. Very good, very good. <laughs> and uh, Pope Francis, uh, he has some Hobbit leanings uh, in him. Um, he, he's in Marseille right now, right? Yes, he is. Uh, so he's taking a what is essentially a 27-hour trip uh, to Marseille, uh, and it has been noted, and this is uh, diplomatically significant, that this is a visit to Marseille. It is not a formal state visit to France. Okay. He's done that before. He, he visited uh, Strasbourg, I think, in 2014 that had the same requirement, that this was not a state visit, even though uh, he will likely have a, a brief encounter with Emmanuel Macron, uh, the, the head of uh, the French government. Uh, that is notable because, as he said on his flight back from Mongolia, he was asked about why he hasn't had these major trips to places like uh, France or Germany, and he said, well, those will come, he said, at the end. Uh, he was a little uh, unclear about what he meant by that. Hmm. Uh, so the, the Vatican, certainly from a diplomatic standpoint, has been very clear about that for this. In this particular visit, uh, he's taking part uh, in what are called the Rencontre Méditerranéen, which is the Mediterranean meetings. And uh, they are a gathering. Uh, it's a church-sponsored event of different people from different religions and backgrounds, in particular uh, young people. We've seen similar ones in, in Bari in 2020 and Florence in 2022. So um, are, they, are they focused uh, particularly on the, the problems of migrants? Yes. Uh, well, it's a couple of things. The first is it brings together uh, the bishops and various people from different backgrounds uh, from across the Mediterranean. It is a shared uh, reality geographically, culturally, yeah. economically. And so Pope Francis uh, wants to take part in this. Uh, he has made, of course, uh, that the plight of migrants, of refugees and others, one of the major concerns of his pontificate. Right. And he has stressed this again, as, as has been noted, about 20,000 people have died in the Mediterranean uh, trying to get to Europe. And it has become, of course, a major crisis culturally and politically now, and even economically. Uh, for many different European countries. So Francis, I think, is trying to put this once again front and center as we're seeing, I think, a significant backlash against uh, this level of migration and, and movement of people. Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a, an ongoing problem. Um, people seeking to better their lives, trying to escape uh, persecution or, uh, you know, political oppression, uh, they're going to, people want to move around. And uh, the question is always, how do we best recognize their, our common humanity and uh, serve them 
uh, while at the same time recognizing the you know the bound, uh, national boundaries. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he he in speaking today, uh, he, it was noted that he was, I think, the first pope to visit Marseille since Clement the Seventh in fifteen thirty three. So it's been a while. <laughs> wow. Uh, but uh, as, uh, he said that, uh, and this is a similar point that he made when he was in Lisbon during World Youth Day, and he's used this image before that we are at a crossroads of civilization, and he made the point that we can go in the one hand uh, with fraternity. Uh, which, as he put it, makes the human community flourish with goodness, but then on the other, indifference, uh, which bloodies the Mediterranean. So notably, it was this year, earlier this year, there was the 10th anniversary of his first significant trip outside of Rome as Pope, and that was to the island, the Italian island of Lampedusa, hmm. which has been one of the targets, one of the objectives uh, for so many migrants, because that's a landing spot uh, for them into Italy. And there has been much controversy over the last weeks as there has been yet another tide of flood of refugees and migrants onto Lampedusa. I think at this point, the refugee population on just on the island is now larger than the, the original population of the island. Wow. And it's creating a lot of problems and a lot of unhappiness among the Lampedusans. And I think Francis is once again urging everyone uh, to be welcoming and to be generous. Uh, and I think at a, it comes at a time when a lot of people really don't want to be either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I just saw that over the last nine years, uh, there have been 20,000 deaths in the central Mediterranean of people. That's you know, right. Yeah, that's... That's absolutely right. Yeah, gee. Um, well, let's let me switch gears and uh, pick up on the Synod on Synodality, which is, of course, uh, yes. approaching quickly and... Uh, I see that there's now reporting on the Chinese bishops will be attending the Synod on Synodality. Can you run them down for me? Yes. Uh, well, so uh, as was expected, uh, there were a number of uh, additions uh, to the participants of the Synod. Uh, now, a lot of this, these would be names that the very few people have ever heard of. Uh, one name in particular uh, on this new list is Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia, uh, you and I have talked yeah. about him quite a few times over the years. Uh, he is the head of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Uh, he is uh, a noted Vatican official, uh, something of a controversial figure uh, because of some of the comments that he's made in the past. But then also in this list uh, were two Chinese bishops, and they raised immediate eyebrows, and a lot of questions were asked who they were. Now, there's a story here because the immediate reporting is that Bishop Antonio Yaoshun of Jining and Bishop uh, Joseph Yang Yangqiang of uh, Saochun will be actually allowed by the Chinese government to participate as full members. Hmm. So there was some question whether that would happen. We know, for example, that uh, several Taiwanese bishops and also Cardinal-elect Stephen Chow, uh, who's the, the Bishop of Hong Kong, who's going to be actually receiving his red hat uh, on the 30th, along with all the other new cardinals, uh, were allowed to participate. Uh, but this was uh, a surprise. And it's a surprise also because uh, we immediately discovered uh, that as information came out that both of these have been well-known in China. One is the vice president of the Chinese-sanctioned, the Chinese government-sanctioned 
Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, which okay. is essentially the Chinese-sanctioned Catholic Church in China. Okay. Now, that, of course, raised a lot of further questions, uh, but he has also said things like that Catholics have to study the spirit of the most recent National Congress of the Communist Party of China, mm. uh, and he's a bishop, however, uh, who in fairness to him, uh, was one of those who took some time to be approved by the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. uh, the other bishop, Antonio Yaoshun, uh, is actually the first bishop who was consecrated or ordained a bishop in China under the terms of the yet-secret uh, Vatican-Chinese Accord that started uh, in 2018. So he was the very first one uh, to be ordained under this structure that's in place. And, and we know now that from the comments from Cardinal Paroline, who's the Vatican Secretary of State, that there is some sort of a commission that exists. Uh, so there's a lot more high-level cooperation between the Vatican and Beijing than was previously known under this agreement. So he um, has been a priest for quite some time uh, and tried for years to be appointed, and it was only under this agreement. So defenders yeah. of this accord would say, well, this is proof that uh, the system can work. Uh, I think there's still a lot of questions about this uh, other bishop, however, given yeah. his uh, relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's so much we don't know when right. we look at these things, and it, it gets, it's very frustrating. We've talked about it before that um, what what this treaty uh, why the need for secrecy uh, isn't this the kind of thing that we have a little more light on because um, secrecy breeds suspicion and right so you know. well and and uh, we know that uh, the Chinese government has violated the terms of the agreement, uh, even though they aren't public. And we know this because the Vatican itself has, on a number of occasions, expressed displeasure, okay. uh, even alarm at some of the violations of it. Yep. Uh, and Xi Jinping is fairly relentless in applying his program of cynicization, in other words, the nationalizing of these churches. Now, the, the goal of this, I think, is twofold. It, it's the, a disagreement. It's to try to normalize as best as possible the how bishops are appointed, and then uh, to help to end what has been a very long-standing divide within uh, the Chinese Catholic Church between those who belong to the Patriotic Association, which is the government-sanctioned one again, mm -hmm. and then what is just generally termed the underground Catholic Church. And it's an open question as to how successful the latter part has been. I think right. the former part, the appointment of bishops, has a, to some degree been normalized, and that's something that the Vatican keeps stressing. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, during the, the Reich's Concordat, I think of 1933, uh, that the, uh, was signed with the, uh, the German government, uh, led to at least 54, 55 complaints from the Holy See. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and so we we don't know how many complaints are being lodged by the Holy See, exactly. You know, and so right. 
And we go back to the Reichskonkordat, uh, the, the, one of the points that uh, the Vatican understood was that this was going to be a document they could keep pointing to, even yeah. if it was ineffective, at least it was on the record. Yeah. But I think if we're looking for uh, two other historical and even contemporary parallels to what the Vatican is trying to do with China here, and we're seeing how this is playing out with these bishops, the, the first is Ostpolitik, uh, which was the way diplomatically and ecclesiastically that the church approached the problems of dealing with the Soviet Union, especially countries like Poland, and the appointment of bishops. Yep. And the other is also the, the concord that exists with Vietnam. Yeah. I'll tell you what, we've got to take a break. You hear the music coming up. Matthew, we'll come back and continue uh, conversation. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, our topic, the church around the world. I'm Al Cresta. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We are taking a look at some stories uh, of Catholic interest around the world. Uh, like, there's some here that are frustrating stories, but um, I think I'll bring them up anyways. Uh, you've got um, this uh, archbishop uh, has release pastoral guidelines that appear to define homosexual attraction uh, as, quote, love, and equates them to heterosexual relationships with respect to pastoral care. Uh, what do we know about uh, Archbishop Mario Delpini of Milan? Yeah, well, he's uh, a Francis appointee. Uh, he was the successor to Angela Scola, uh, who was... Uh, for a number of years, the Archbishop of Milan. Previously, he had been Patriarch of Venice. If you go back all the way to 2013, I think if there was one leading candidate that was assumed heading into the conclave, uh, he was the one. Of course, he, it turns out that he had almost very little support, apparently, among the cardinals. He subsequently retired, and, and Pope Francis appointed uh, Mario Delpini as his successor. What is interesting is that while Francis has uh, elevated several of his appointees to uh, the Cardinalate, uh, he has so far bypassed Delpini uh, for whatever reasons Pope Francis has. As we know, his um, his choices for who he makes cardinals are sometimes difficult to decipher precisely, but Francis clearly has a plan. All of this points to what he has just issued, uh, Archbishop Delpini, and that is uh, some pastoral guidelines, as you noted, uh, on how to provide pastoral care and the key word and we hear this from time to time is accompaniment yeah. uh, for members of the homosexual community sure and that is what i think is uh, raising a lot of eyebrows sure. uh, as to what he's talking about he stresses as again we see this type of pastoral language of delicate attention uh an awareness of modern day sensibilities accompanying and understanding and then the key sentence there is the experience of love and the different nuances of attraction uh, both to people of different genders and to people of the same gender that's i think where we're seeing a lot of uh, uproar so i mean the implication is that homosexual attraction anyways is simply uh, another 
legitimate variant of sexuality. Yeah, I, I think there's, uh, as he puts it, um, the, the Christian community has to assume the responsibility of teaching about love in all its sexual dimensions. So in, if one extends out the logic of this, it would appear uh, that they are advocating that we actually have an openness to teach or to recognize uh, that everything is the same uh, and that everyone is free to discover, as they put it, his or her own vocation of love. Uh, so it's uh, it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Now, all of this. You, you have to wonder when they talk about accompaniment, accompany to where? I mean, where are we going with this? <laughs> right. Well, I, exactly. And and as someone pointed out a long time ago, when when the term accompaniment was first being used, uh, it's all right. We are accompanying someone, but if we know that they're about to walk off a cliff, yeah, literal or moral or spiritual, do we have an obligation? A, to stop them, or B, to walk off the cliff with them. Yeah, yeah. It's and crazy. I think that's where many questions are, are being asked about what exactly we mean by accompaniment, and I think documents like this tend to add to some of the lack of clarity. Let me go to another uh, report that's frustrating, and that has to do with the, um, uh, the claim from the former superior of the now-expelled Father Marco Rupnik, a Jesuit, claiming that the internal procedures of the Vatican prevented the Jesuit order from prosecuting this guy more vigorously for his sexual, spiritual, and psychological abuse of several women. Tell, tell us what you can about the Rupnik affair to begin with. Yeah, well, this has been a long-simmering problem. Uh, that's now been dragging on for several years as the various investigations have uh, progressed. Uh, what uh, they're referring to is the one of the latest statements, uh, an announcement from the Vicariate of Rome, basically the Diocese of Rome, that a canonical investigation into the so Aleti Center, uh, which was the heart of where Rupnik worked, uh, that they wanted to look at what was the situation there. We know that Rupnik has been accused of multiple uh, episodes of sexual abuse and control uh, of women religious uh, and others. Uh, and so the question then was, what is in this Aleti Center? Well, the, the Diocese of Rome announced that as a result of its canonical investigations that uh, they basically gave the place a complete clean bill of health. And this has sparked outrage on the part of the victims. Uh, the, the words have been used of bewilderment and anguish, and that uh, this report, uh, as they put it, ridicules the, the, the pain of the victims. And they, the victims have issued an open letter uh, accusing uh, the Jesuits and everyone else in the Diocese of Rome of uh, failing uh, in this particular episode uh, to bring about authentic justice. And the exoneration of this community was especially peculiar given the language that was used. Uh, they said that, and, and I'll, I'll quote here to be precise, that 
the visitation was able to ascertain that the members of the Aleti Center, although saddened by the accusations received and the ways in which they were handled, chose to maintain silence despite the vehemence of the media to guard their hearts and not claim some blamelessness with which to stand as judge of others. I'll let you try to decipher that. Yeah. Look, th- this this clearly was a circling of the wagons. And but Rupnik has been excommunicated, or at least he's been his faculties have been removed. Yes, well, he was uh, excommunicated, and and here's where the importance of canon law comes in. Uh, apparently, having failed in this particular case, but uh, according to canon law, he was automatically excommunicated, and the technical term is latte sententiae, right? Which means that it's simply by having done the deed you are automatically excommunicated. Right. And the deed in this particular case was hearing the confession and then attempting to grant absolution uh, to one of his victims, a woman with whom he had relations. Mm. And the maddening part for the victims here, and I, I will have to see how this plays out, whether or not this actually turns out to be the case, is that the First, the Jesuits' investigation into this did confirm the excommunication, but then it was lifted uh, later in 2020 after Rupnik repented. Now, that's the procedure that's supposed to follow. But now, according to this report from the Diocese of Rome and its visitation, they have made the claim that there are grave, potentially grave, irregular procedures that now raise questions about the validity of the excommunication itself. So, in other words, uh, it None of this might have ever been anything that rose to the level of excommunication, even though we have a lot of testimony from the witnesses and the victims. So, so where do they go from here then? How does how, do, how does this get cleaned up? Well, this is the, the question. Uh, it's As it has been, this remains with Pope Francis. And uh, we will have to see. Uh, he is still somebody, presumably without faculties, Uh, He's obviously not under the penalty of excommunication. And where this goes from here uh, is up to, ultimately, as I said, the Holy Father and the proper authorities of the Society of Jesus. But the the challenge now is that the the Jesuits themselves have all but washed their hands of him. Meanwhile, we still have his art all over uh, the place in publications and on buildings. uh, And it's a sore moment, I think, for a lot of the victims to see this art still out yeah. there now. It raises the other question, do we purge? I mean, do we do we purge his art? Do we excise him, declare him a non-person? Yeah. Uh, so liturgically, in terms of ecclesiastical art, uh, there are a lot of fans of his art, but there are also a lot of people who yeah. disliked it over the years and see this as just further insult. Well, you do have the you do have the impact of the art on the victims, which seems to me to be of concern. Um, you don't want victims coming in every liturgy and being reminded of this uh, abuser. But uh, you know, this is always this is always difficult. What do you do with the work of uh, somebody like Richard Wagner? Uh, you know, who was uh, an anti-Semite and. Uh, uh, himself abusive to many women. What do you do with his operas, right? Do they get played? Right. And uh, for many years, the nation of Israel refused uh, to let his uh, operas be performed in Israel. And I'm not even certain what the standard is now there. But th- this, <laughs> you know, this gets, these are legitimate questions to ask. And yes. How do you, yeah, how do you they handle? are. Yeah. 
And I think that the, the wider issue is why has it been so difficult uh, for the Rooknick case to have been handled in much the same way that we have seen other cases handled? Now, there's a, there's a difference between someone like Masayal and the Legion uh, because of the nature of the offenses, mm-hmm. but we're still talking about uh, the abuse of power and uh, various canonical crimes and sins. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why has this proven to be so neuralgic a problem to deal with uh, canonically and ecclesiastically? And I think that's one of the questions that a lot of the victims are, are continuing to ask. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's go to something um, where we we see a priest who actually looks like a priest, and that's St. Daniel Comboni, the Italian missionary priest <laughs> and bishop who fought to end slavery in Africa. Pope Francis praising him. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, uh, well, one of the, 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 the Comboni missionaries, uh, so Daniel Comboni was a great priest, and he was one of those priests that uh, had been sort of overlooked, I would argue, uh, in history. Uh, somebody who was genuinely concerned, so he lived, he died in 1881, uh, who was genuinely concerned about evangelization uh, in Africa. And there has been this long-standing tie between Italy and Africa, at that times painful because of colonialism and things. Right. But he served in the missions in Africa. He was a bishop, and then he was the founder of the Camboni Missionaries, uh, and then also the Camboni Missionary Sisters. And one of his biggest concerns, and this is why this is so relevant, uh, is for an end to the slave trade uh, that existed uh, in Africa. And, of course, historically, this has been one of the greatest tragedies uh, that the slave trade persisted and continues to persist today. Uh, but he, was, he put his life at, in great danger. Uh, preaching in places like Khartoum you know, in Sudan. Mm-hmm. And he took as his goal trying to free, to liberate as many enslaved children as possible and to work to bring an end uh, to the whole of the slave trade, but also out of a genuine love to uh, evangelize. And he had a great slogan that was to save Africa through Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in other words, to help Africans, especially by bringing them the faith. And he's one of those architects, I would say, that we have seen the phenomenal rise of of Christianity, Catholicism in particular in Africa. When we we think back, there were barely a million Catholics in 1900, and now there are 200 million in Africa. Yeah, you can imagine that he had a lot to do with that, uh, if not on earth, certainly intercession in heaven. And uh, for all Francis has praised him. Yeah. And for all those who think that um, somehow a preoccupation with the sacrament of the Eucharist works against social uh, interaction, uh, his famous phrase was, the Eucharistic Jesus is my strength. <laughs>